Matthew chapter 6. While you're turning there, um, I'm going to pray as we uh, look at the cost of forgiveness. Oh, Father, we thank you that you're so gracious to us and so patient with us. Thank you, Lord, for the friendship that we experience with you through grace, faith in Jesus. And we pray that all these big truths would um, come down into our lives today. There's a lot of people who deal with, who are dealing with shame even now and pain even now. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. We pray that you would do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick it up, um, this prayer that we are all familiar with from Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. He says, beginning at verse 9, pray like this, our Father in heaven, May your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day or today the food that we need. Verse 12 is what we're going to focus on. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Verse 14. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But... If you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew 18, I'll just read it. Jesus says, Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid the entire debt. And that's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. These are shocking words from Jesus, but what we've been learning is that the gospel comes to create not only new individuals, it comes to create a new community. Um, D.A. Carson um, in one quote says that this community called the church, which Jesus is passionate about, the reason why we have conflict frequently is because it's not made up of primarily friends natural friends it's made up of natural enemies people of all different backgrounds and all different social structures and all different races coming together rejecting the sins of our of our nature and of our culture rejecting racism and classism and all of those things coming together and saying we're on mission together to worship and serve Jesus because of our faith in him Jesus comes to create a new community problem as Matthew says is this problem called debt now debt is the word that Jesus refers to when he talks about sin in Matthew chapter 12 some of your translations say forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us the word that is actually used in the original language is the word debt it's interesting that Matthew keys in on that word because Matthew is like this um, accountant mathematical money guy by trade. And so as the Holy Spirit's using him to author these words, he clues in on this idea that sin 
according to Jesus, is debt. It's one of five words or so that's used to describe sin. We know sin is not just breaking the rules. That's how religious people tend to view sin. It's the breaking of some moral rule. But sin is much greater than that. Some places it's seen as weight. Some places it's seen as missing the mark, which is perfection, God's standard. But in this prayer, Jesus tells his disciples, his followers, pray, forgive us the debt that we have against you, God, in the same way that we forgive the debt that's owed to us by others, the wrongs that have been committed to us. And can you imagine the, the amount of pain and wrong that's been done to people in this room alone? Like the weight of debt and the weight of shame that maybe if you have felt towards God or the pain that has been inflicted on you by other people. This is a really difficult passage to grasp because of that. Um, and that's the problem that we all face and that we all have to deal with. There's questions that we ask then. Are we to always pursue, to pursue reconciliation? That's the essence of the gospel is reconciliation. That we have been made in the image of God, but through rebellion and through sin, that image was marred and broken. And Jesus has come into this world and lived a perfect life. He's perfectly imaged God so that by faith in Christ, that image is restored and that debt has been paid. But if God, his mission is reconcilia reconciliation, is our mission always to be reconciliation? Because here's, how the way that, here's the way that I tend to view people wronging me or debt. Secretly, I fantasize about how I can really verbally tell them how I feel. Like, I think at certain times, wow, what if it was, a, it was a day like this? It was a sunny day. I saw them coming down the street. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God came on me where I had the anointing of Britt Merrick to verbally just <laughs> speak to this person and tell them how I really feel. And there just happens to be this audience around me. And they're all cheering and applauding. Wow, that was the best put down we've ever heard. <laughs> and they feel the weight of that, the pain that, that I felt. And, and they just start to maybe cry a little, like little tear trickle down. <laughs> and then it's followed by just streams of just remorseful tears. Don't look at me like that. You know that you have that same dream. Maybe not. I'm probably worse than you. I don't think so. But um, that's how I tend, I'm tempted to deal with it. We all know that we're supposed to forgive, right? We all know that we're supposed to love our enemies and forgive. But do we? See, this whole topic of forgiveness is emotionally stirring and it's intellectually demanding on us. I read a book um, talking about emotionally stirring. It was a really good book called uh, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years by an author named Donald Miller. And in this book, he talks about the fact that um, he was without a dad. He grew up without a dad. His dad split on him when he was a kid. 
And then all of a sudden, a friend told him that he should pursue finding his dad. So he never wanted to do that. And then one day he wanted to do it. And he went through all this, this, this whole story about how he attempted to find his father who was estranged from him. And because of that, he had felt certain elements of rejection throughout life. And, and when he uh, first attempted to find his dad, the records show that his dad was dead. And then he felt a weight lifted, like, I don't have to pursue that any longer. But then his mom contacted him with the actual listing of his dad. And he drove, he happened to be in, I think it was Illinois, and his dad lived in the local area. He drove six hours to meet him and find him. And that day he sat there, he said, I was just still. And this is what he said. He said, uh, we were two hours into our conversation now, but he was coming to what he wanted to say. And I never thought there was anything that he wanted, that he would have uh, wanted to say to me. I never thought I would be so nervous and scared, but... He was both nervous and scared, and he got tender, and there were tears in his eyes. He put down his beer, but he didn't turn down the television. Anderson Cooper was talking about ethanol legislation in the background, and he was talking with a senator from Illinois. I don't have any excuses, son, he said to me. And it was odd to be called son by a man I hadn't seen in 30 years. It was odd to be anyone's son. It felt right right for another time and another place and another story that never actually happened. I'm sorry, he said, and he cried. A tear came down his cheek and he put down his beer and reached his hand over the armchair to the couch and I took his hand. I'm sorry, he repeated, his voice breaking with emotion. Do you forgive me? I do, I said. I forgive you. And I did. Even though I didn't know I needed to, I forgave him and I haven't felt anything against him since. He took a sip from his beer and thanked me. Put, down, put his hand on my knee and squeezed till I thought my leg would break. He reached over and picked up a book and smiled and shook his head. He said, you can write. I can't believe how good your stories are. I didn't want his words to mean anything. I didn't want to need his affirmation. But part of ourselves is spirit, and our spirits are thirsty. And my father's words went into my spirit like water. See, it's emotionally draining when we think about the fact that Forgiveness is so a part of who we are and what we need. It's, it's also emotionally draining to me this past week when I, when I look at stories that are so horrific, it challenges the core of what I believe about forgiveness. I read about that story um, in a book this past week about forgiveness, and it brought up the, the whole murder that happened in um, Pennsylvania with the Amish school children in 2006. And in this Amish school were um, in this, this classroom of, of young girls, junior high and grade school age. And on this one sunny day, as they sang songs about the frailty of life and about the grace of God, and on the board it said that something to the effect that visitors are a are, uh, they bring joy in life. Um, as they went outside to play, and they saw the man who normally would deliver their milk and their food to their school, they didn't know the evil intent that he had for him that day. As he arrived on campus, pulled out a gun, and he um, started to threaten all of them, one of the girls, a 13-year-old girl, um, offered herself as a sacrifice on behalf of her friends. Her friends were shouting out, no, no, don't do it, probably knowing that 
his intent was to kill them all. And that day, he did open fire, and he shot all of them. He killed them. Um, what happened as, as a result was some of the families in the local area said that they forgave the family of the man, and they started to actually, the, some of the, um, the grieving families offered money to the man's family who remained. The man himself shot himself and killed himself. And they, um, they offered support for that man's family. One author from the Boston Globe wasn't so happy with that. He said, I can't deny that it deeply, it, it's deeply affecting to see how seriously the Amish strive to heed Jesus' admonition to return good for evil and to turn the other cheek. For many Christians, the Amish, deter, Amish determination to forgive their daughter's murder is awe-inspiring. Um, but could you do that? Could you stand over the body of a dead child and, and tell the, the young child who's there left not to hate the killer? He said, hatred's not always wrong and forgiveness is always, not always deserved. I admire the Amish's villagers' uh, resolve to live up to their Christian ideals even amid heartbreak, but how many of us would really want to live in a society in which no one gets angry when children are slaughtered, in which even the most horrific acts of cruelty were always and instantly forgiven? There's a time to love and a time to hate, Ecclesiastes teaches. If anything deserved to be hated, surely it's the pitiless murder of innocence. There's a part of us that resonates with that. The reason why we resonate with that is because we're created in the image of God and we desire for justice. God is just, and he actually does have wrath, and he pours out that wrath on unjust causes and unjust killings. But in Jesus' story, or in his prayer here, we see that somehow, in some way, forgiveness of others is linked to our forgiveness as well. Um, I was reading a marriage book on forgiveness, and he said something to the effect that in the economy of marriage, one of the greatest attributes that continues a relationship moving forward is this thing of repentance and forgiveness. That's the greatest, that's the greatest commodity in a marriage. That's what binds the two together, repentance and forgiveness. It binds relationships together because we have this exalted view of what we should be or what you should do, and we wrong one another. We are indebted to each other. Can you imagine the amount of debt here relationally? Can you imagine the amount of bitterness that is in here? Just in this room alone. What we realize is that we're called to extend this gift of forgiveness. And here's this overarching principle today, is that for the Christian, for the follower of Christ, because we've been forgiven, forgiving others is not an option, but it is a decision. I know it, it doesn't, doesn't go well together, but I want to unpack that in a second. First, forgiving others is not an option because it alienates us. It alienates us from God. This uh, whole section of Matthew 18, when Jesus says to Peter, Peter is overwhelmed by this idea that he's supposed to forgive people that have wronged him. It's actually counterculture uh, to any other 
religion or culture of that day and of our day. Typically, it was an eye for an eye. Jesus calls them to love their enemies, calls us to do good to our enemies, even when they use us spitefully. Peter, hearing Jesus say this in Matthew 18, says to Jesus, okay, so let's say somebody wrongs me like seven times in one day. Same guy wrongs me. He comes back and apologizes. Is that kind of the limit that I'm supposed to forgive? See, we have this idea that we want, because we want to keep the rules, maybe like there's some limit to how often I forgive or can forgive and still be kind of within the favor of God. Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, I'm telling you, if he wrongs you seven times 70, you're to forgive, and he comes to you 70 times seven, something like 490, right? I think. Yeah, Okay. If he wrongs you that many times, you're to forgive him. Peter, overwhelmed by that, looks at Jesus and Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like if there was this king and the king called for all of the people that worked for him to pay the money that they owed him. And one individual owed him something like 20 years wages. Now for some of you, that's your college tuition if you go to school on the Santa Barbara coastline. I'm sorry to bring that up to you right now. Now you need prayer for peace. <laughs> he says, 20 years wages is what, uh, what you owe me. And this guy falls on his knees and begs for forgiveness. And the king exonerates him and forgives his debt. That same word, debt. But then it says that this same man who was forgiven these 20 years wages goes out and he finds a guy who owes him 20 bucks. And we live in a culture of unforgiveness, so we're familiar with this. And he looks at him and says, you owe me debt. And so he grabs him by the neck and begins to choke him and beat him. And he says he puts him into prison. And as a result, the king finds out and says, you wicked servant. Did I not forgive you of the 20 years wages? And this guy owes you 20 bucks, and he cursed him into prison himself. And Jesus said, so also is it if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. Now, it doesn't mean that unforgiveness short circuits. Uh, it doesn't mean that God forgives us if we forgive other people. God forgives us by the basis of grace, our faith in Christ alone. Now, what it does mean is that unforgiveness in the life of a believer short circuits the grace of God at work in our life. The fullness of the work of the grace of God because both forgiving and repenting stem from an awareness of our deep poverty before God and the fact that only Christ can pay that debt. And when I don't forgive, I put myself in the place of the judgment seat. And I begin to cast other people down and elevate myself, which pride is the opposite of humility or bitterness is the opposite of humility. It's also a test of our forgiveness. It shows whether or not we get grace by the way that we give grace. Like if I get the idea that 
I'm completely indebted to God because of my sin, and Jesus alone can free me. If I lose sight of that, I don't get grace if I'm not giving it out. On the other hand, it also alienates us from others. And here's why. Jesus, or, uh, the author of Hebrews, excuse me, talked about bitterness as a root. I've been trying to pull weeds in my house this past week, and I have these spacers in my backyard, and it, it's hard to pull weeds out of spacers for some reason. And, and I'm teaching my daughter how to pull out the weed by the root, and it's really hard to get that because it's so small and it's really, it's down in there. Jesus said bitterness is like a root in our heart. And oftentimes, most of us here wouldn't say, I'm really bitter at my husband. I'm really bitter at my wife. I'm really bitter at my mom or dad or son or daughter or pastor or friend or boss. We say, I'm really hurt by what they did, and we seek for ways to exact payment from them whether it's through slander, through gossip, by warning other people. Bitterness, it's small, but it's a root. And what happens is one author said that I'm convinced that the greatest way that Satan enters in and has a place of working in our lives is through for unforgiveness and bitterness. And he comes in and he begins to stir up these motions of anger. And why aren't they giving me what I deserve? Why aren't they giving me what I need? They owe me. They're in debt to me. But it also short circuits um, this grace, this community before the world. Because it's, it's through forgiveness, through confession and uh, forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness, that's the greatest demonstration of the gospel to the world. This group of not normally friends, but no natural enemies coming together from all different walks of life and the spirit of God working through and us repenting and forgiving on a continual basis. It's needed in marriage, just like it's needed in a church. Because we can come in here and be so full of ourselves still and so full of our brokenness and our bitterness and our anger and our despair that we begin to hold on to that. We want to hold on to resentment because in some ways it's one of life's guilty pleasures. It feels good for a moment. But how well does it work for you? How well does it work for you when you're still holding on to it for two years, 20 years? And what we realize is that what we see in this passage is that forgiveness for the believer in Christ is not an option, but it is a decision. What is it a decision to do? That's what we find. It's a decision to, uh, for, well, before I give it away, I want to say what it's a decision not to do. Because we live in a culture of unforgiveness. We have unhealthy views of what forgiveness is. And we tend to see forgiveness as being something that I have to let it go because it's going to eat me up inside. But it's not primarily because it's going to eat me up inside. It's because it's the way that I draw near to God. And if not, it actually alienates me from the Lord Jesus Christ short-circuit the work of the gospel in my life and before a non-believing world and alienates me from others. So 
what is a decision not to do? Well, first, it's not a decision to gloss over or to enable sin. Um, John Stott says, real love loves the beloved enough to be tough sometimes. Real love is so passionately devoted to beloved that it hates every evil which is incompatible with his or her highest welfare. And sometimes people say, I love them too much to say this to them. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to say that to them. But what we have to realize is that if there is, like Galatians 6, 1 says, um, if a brother or sister is overtaken in a fault, in a sin, then it's loving as a believer in Christ to not enable or to gloss over the sin, but to actually hate the sin and to come to the individual in a spirit of humility and seek to see this person relieved from it. But the reason why we sometimes don't um, seek confrontation is not because we love them so much, but because we love ourselves so much. We would rather be loved by the other individual than have the other individual freed from that fault, from that sin. We'd rather have, uh, have the love given back to us. We'd rather not lose that individual. And so what forgiveness is not, is it's not glossing over or enabling sin. Neither is forgiveness removing justice. Sometimes doing what's best for a person is stopping them from doing more evil. Stopping them from themselves or preventing them from committing evil against other people. If a person is abusing someone, they should be turned in. It's not unloving to report them. If a person is uh, abusing children, it's not unloving to report them. It is very loving to seek after justice. God is just, and he loves justice. In fact, it says at the end of the book, God one day will pour out his wrath on all injustice who have not, all the unjust who have not put their faith in Christ because Jesus is the one who came and drank the injustice for us so that we don't have to receive it. It's not the removal of justice. And so if there's wrong that's committed against you that's illegal, it's okay to press charges. In fact, it's the loving thing to do to prevent that person from continuing. Neither is it a decision to forgive and forget. Sometimes we hear this idea that we should forgive and forget because after all, God forgets. God says in Scripture, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more, which we rejoice in. But what that doesn't mean is that God somehow supernaturally forgets everything that's ever happened before he's forgiven us. He would cease to be God if he had, you know, like some sort of divine forgetful memory. What it does mean instead is that God chooses to view us, our past, our present, and our future in light of the perfect, uh, uh, sinless life of Jesus Christ. God now views me as sinless, as righteous because of what Christ has done, and he sees my past in that way, and he remembers it, he chooses to see me in that light. But it doesn't mean that you'll forget something. Forgiving somebody doesn't always mean that you're going to forget. You might remember it for a long, long time. In fact, the, 
the battle that you'll face is, and that many of us will face, is to every time something triggers our memory or say for the wife whose husband has committed adultery and now she sees him laughing and joking with some gal, how could she not have that triggered in her memory? It does mean that we will have to continually battle for that sense of uh, repentance that, uh, on our own part and you know, having sh- close ties with the other individual. It doesn't mean either that, um, we all, that we should wait for an apology before we forgive someone because an apology might not ever happen. Death might occur, distance might occur, however it might be. Neither does it mean that we should always, or that it won't hurt anymore. Sometimes, for the rest of a person's life, they continue to feel the pain of what was inflicted on them. And it falls back to the idea of memory. And there's a need to continually take it before God and make a decision that I'm going to absorb or pay the cost on this because this individual has repented of this before me. But it doesn't mean that the hurt is always going to go away. In fact, you might feel, you might have those wounds until the rest of your life or on this side of eternity. But it doesn't mean that God can't redeem those wounds and use them in the lives of other people. It doesn't mean, lastly, that there's always going to be reconciliation. See, it takes, one person has said, it takes um, one to forgive, it takes two to reconcile. See, we're called to forgive as God in Christ forgave us. And on the cross, Jesus cries out that the Father would forgive them of their sins, but not everybody's sin there who was there at the day that Jesus was crucified is forgiven of their sin. Only those who put their faith, who receive the gift of forgiveness and repent of sin are reconciled back to God. It's the same in relationships. I put it like this. Um, I know someone whose wife has uh, committed adultery on them, uh, was with another man, and she um, had said that she wanted to reconcile, and yet she continued to have uh, conversation and relationship with this other man, and she did, uh, you know, say she was sorry. She confessed and repented to uh, this man, uh, other guy that I know, and uh, he forgave her, and they attempted to move on through counseling. But he said, as long as you're with this person, it shows that your heart is unrepentant. Repentance means to turn away from your sin and to turn to God. As a result, there's no reconciliation. It's that that way with our relationship with God. It's that way with our relationship with one another. We're called to forgive, but reconciliation takes two. So then what are we called to do? If if, um, If Christians are always called to forgive, and if forgiving others is not an option, it's a decision, What's it a de- what is it a decision to do? Jesus says, Matthew 6, verse 12, 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. A couple of authors that I've read this past week say that, and I think they put it best, forgiveness is a decision to absorb the cost of the debt that's been committed against us. It's a decision to absorb the cost. It's not just a psychological relief that somebody gets from forgiving and loving, but we do it primarily because we want to draw near to God and we want to demonstrate the gospel to the world. When someone owes you something seriously wrong, somebody commits, um, someone, let's say you borrow my car. This happened, I remember this when I was a kid. Uh, my dad bought a car and he loaned his friend his truck. And then about a week later, I remember being in the living room watching his friend knock on the door and bring just a box back to him. It was a box of junk that was in the truck. He totaled the truck and gave him some money and the box of his junk. It was an attempt to pay for the cost. So in that situation, one of two things can happen. I don't remember how it went, I was small, but one of two things can happen. If my dad receives the payment for the truck, that man is out, say, $1,000. Um, it was the early 80s, it was a cheap truck. Um, <laughs> but if he, if he refuses and he says, no, I forgive you, I receive your apology, I forgive you, then my dad is out a thousand bucks. But either way, somebody has to pay the cost. Somebody has to pay and absorb the cost of what's been done. Now, for you and I, forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who's harmed me. But it must recognize that forgiveness is always an, a voluntary form of some way suffering. You're saying, if I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to make a decision here. I know it's not an option, but I'm going to make a decision to absorb the cost that you owe me. There's a beautiful picture of this in, in um, the play, and uh, it was made into a movie. I don't know how many of you have seen the, the movie or seen the play Les Miserables, but in, this, in the movie version I saw it recently, um, there's a man by the name of John Valjean. He's a known criminal. He's, he's, um, uh, he leaves, he's been in prison for some time. He, we first see him in the rock quarry, and he's being beaten by the police that are there. And he's just, his whole life, his whole existence is being a criminal. And one night he shows up to uh, this, the house of a bishop, um, and he knocks on the door, and this man is reading and writing, reading the Bible or something like that. And um, it's by candlelight, and John Valjean says, I need a place to stay, I'm just out of prison, I need to go here, I'm a known criminal, would you let me in? If not, you know who I am. And he fully expects this man to reject him, but instead the bishop looks at him, who's an older man, the bishop is, looks at John Valjean, who's considerably younger than him, and he says, no, I, you're invited to come in and, and have dinner with us. And John Valjean is taken back because he knows his own nature. He knows where he's been. He's a criminal. Why would this bishop have him over for dinner? So he sits for dinner, and the woman who's in the scene with him, she's noticeably uh, kind of shaken by this criminal who's at dinner with these two and and the older bishop looks at him and the woman says what are you what, are, what were you in prison for and he said maybe murder and he said 
how do you know I won't kill you tonight? And the bishop looks at him and says, how do you know I won't kill you tonight? <laughs> and the next scene they have after they said, well, I guess we're just going to have to trust each other is that Jean Valjean comes downstairs and it's dark and Jean Valjean is, um, you know, making noise, putting the silverware into his bag. He's still in the silverware that he noticed at dinner time. And the bishop comes downstairs, he hears something, he walks and he sees John Valjean face to face and John Valjean smacks him in the face and knocks this old bishop down. And you immediately feel this sense of how could you do that? But then the next scene we have is the bishop in the garden with this woman. I think it's his wife. Um, I don't know, I could be wrong. She's, they're, they're in the garden there, and, and she's bickering at him. It must have been his wife. Uh, she's bickering. <laughs> it's a joke. She's bickering at him, and he says, well, then we'll use plastic silverware, or we'll use wooden spoons, and because uh, she's saying, we never should have had this man in, and the police bring John Valjean through the door, and she cries out, God answered our prayers. Look who's here. He caught him. Thank you, God. And the police officer looks at uh, the bishop and says, I found this man and he has your silverware. He says, you gave it to him. And he said, I'm so angry at you, John Valjean, the bishop says. I told you to take the candlesticks too. Why did you forget the candlesticks? And John Valjean looks at him, dismayed. And the officer says, so you did give this to him? Knowing that this man is clearly a criminal, he said, I did give it to him. And then the man, the bishop, tells the woman, um, these men, I think, are thirsty, so they, she goes in and she gets uh, some wine for the men. And then the bishop looks at John Valjean, who has his hood over his head, and he's clearly overwhelmed by the, by the forgiveness and generosity of this bishop, who has a shiner in his face. And he said, why would you do that? And the bishop looks at him, and, and he says, now don't forget... Don't ever forget, Jean Valjean, you've promised to become a different man. You be, you've promised to become a new man. Jean Valjean responds, promise? What, why are you doing this? And the bishop says, Jean Valjean, and he pulls his hood over him with a lot of courage, looks into his eye, this man who slapped him and stole from him, and he said, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have redeemed your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and I give you back to God. And for the rest of the film, the rest of the play, um, John Valjean lives his days, the rest of his days, both running from a, an evil tyrant of an of a officer who's portrayed in the movie, um, because he just wants him to be executed and put behind bars again. But not only running, but also giving to people, redeeming, rescuing people, giving, forgiving, giving grace, the rest of the film, because he got grace. It so overwhelmed him, the forgiveness and the grace that he experienced from this man, he gave it the rest of his days. And at the end of the film, there is... um, um, the, the officer who finally captures him and takes him to this river, this canal that's, you know, full of water, running stream, 
and he takes him to the edge of the canal. He shoes away the other officers, and he puts a gun to John Valjean's head and kind of moves it around his chin and his head. And he asks John Valjean, why didn't you shoot me that day that you had the opportunity? And John Valjean says, I don't have the right to take your life. I don't have the right to take any man's life. And he said, but you hate me. He said, I don't hate you. I feel nothing. And he said, this officer then takes off the chains from John Valjean. It's very symbolic. Takes the chains off of his hands, puts him on his own hands, and he said, all my life I have attempted never to break any rules. And he stands at the edge of the water, and he plunges himself into the water and kills himself. And it's symbolic showing that it's the grace of God that frees us. And it's the religion in us, the legalism that seeks to exact payment from other people. Because I'm working to cover the cost. I'm trying to work to cover the debt. And therefore, I withhold forgiveness from other people. I'm saying, how many people can I forget, forgive in a day, God? Seven? Is that good enough? And Jesus is saying, your whole life is one of repentance, as Martin Luther said. Your whole life will be one of forgiveness. This is the characteristic of this new community that I'm creating. But it's the broken man who stands before God and beats his chest and says, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my horrible debt. And then when he's indebted against by other people, he's gotten grace so much that he can now say, I'll absorb the cost for you. And that's in all cases when wrong is done to us. Forgiveness is always very costly. And the reason why we remain bitter with people is because in some ways we feel superior. How could you do that? Don't you know that you're supposed to keep the rules like I've tried to do my whole life? Forgiveness... Um, one man says, um, flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of God, of the crucified Messiah for long, without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of uh, this horrible humanity. He says, when one knows that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and intimate God's love for him. Jesus says, if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father in heaven won't forgive you either. The person who forgives other people is a person who is continually repenting, a person who, as the gospel shows us, is both spiritually, has spiritual poverty and spiritual wealth. That's what enables us to pay the cost for somebody else to forgive them. Here's why. To the degree that I see Jesus Christ on the cross yelling out, it is finished. What does the word mean? It's paid in full. I have, a, a, I have absorbed, I've paid for all of your debt, all of your sin. That Jesus is the one who ransoms me from my sin. 
to that degree that I see Jesus as taking it all away, that I'm completely forgiven. And not only has he taken my debt away, he's made me spiritually wealthy. He's given me all of his righteousness. He sees me. The Father sees me now as having lived a perfect life. He now no longer remembers my sinfulness. He looks at me and he sees the perfect, spotless, complete wealth of his son. So then I'm free to give. I'm not, I no longer have to cover up and withhold because I know my debt. I'm spiritually poor, but I'm also spiritually wealthy so that whatever you do to me with that understanding, I realize you can't really take anything from me. God has given me everything that I need for life and godliness. And so the way that we absorb the debt is by first receiving grace. Now, secondly, it's by then extending the gift of forgiveness. We receive grace. We extend this gift saying, I offer this to you as Christ offers it to me. This one man, Dan Hamilton, said, Once upon a time, I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but only in small sums over a year. They were made whenever I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past, whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity, whenever I saw her with another man, whenever I praised her to others, whenever I wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments, but she never saw them, and her own payment were unseen by me. But I, but I do know that she forgave me. Forgiveness is more than a matter of refusing to hate someone. It's a matter of choosing to demonstrate love and acceptance to the offender. Pain is the consequence of sin. There's no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, the love that heals. Do you see how we exact little payments from people? We make them pay in our mind. We make cutting remarks and we drag out the past. We become demanding and controlling because they owe me. We punish them with our self-righteousness and we say, I'll forgive you as long as you do this. We avoid them, cold to them, despondent to them. We actively seek to scheme and hurt them, taking something valuable from them because they've taken something valuable from me. And so even if they know it or not, I'm going to exact payment from them. The gospel is a different way. It shows me that Jesus Christ has taken all of the payment on himself for me. And it frees you from being proud. And it frees you from being self-righteous. And it frees you from fearing because Jesus looks at your face and he says, with these nails and this wood, I freed you from your fear and your hate. Now remember, you're a different man. You're a different woman. And I give you back. I bring you back to God. For the Christian, forgiving others is not an option. It shows that you've gotten grace when you give grace. It's a proof of your forgiveness but it is a decision and it's sometimes a very painful, difficult one. But with that decision, 
brings a new community, brings a new marriage, brings a new friendship, brings a new relationship at your job where you no longer seek to exact payments by little cutting remarks and reminding and rehashing the past. It's the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for the freedom you give us. And right now, before you, we are laid bare and open and honest and say, at our deepest core, this is completely foreign to us, Lord. We need the supernatural grace of God. So this morning, I pray that you would shower the grace of God in a supernatural way by the power of your spirit, Lord, in this room where there's broken relationships, and for sure there are, where there's woundedness, and for sure there is, we pray that you would bring healing, that we would decide, Jesus, you've made me spiritually wealthy. You take away anger and fear and hatred. This morning, we come forward and we receive that body broken for us with a bread that symbolizing Jesus' blood shed for us and the cup. There's prayer teams on both sides. Sometimes it's really good to confess sin one to another. Say, I need God to hear me and I want to pray with you that my debt would be removed.